Every year, we dedicate one month to highlight the ways God has used the faithfulness of our church family to demonstrate God's faithful love to people in our community and around the world. My name is Stephanie Summers, and I'm the executive director of Divine Threads. And our vision is to weave strength, dignity, and hope into the lives of every disadvantaged woman. Well, our mission is to empower and revive women so that they can come out of traumatic situations and they need physical uh, needs are met through the clothing. We help them with the life skills through, we have a tech training class and we also work with another nonprofit called Omega that comes in and we refer our women to them to help them prepare for jobs. And then we uh, offer a Mending the Soul group where we work with women uh, to help them heal from their trauma. And I can think of one recent story that sort of encapsulates everything. We had a woman referred to us who came in and you know, she had experienced sexual abuse as a child and domestic violence as an adult. And she had es escaped that scenario, needed clothing. So she came in for a makeover. We actually also were able to connect her with Omega. She hadn't worked for many, many years and she'd taken care of her kids and her grandkids. So she herself didn't have job skills. So they helped her in that area. They actually placed her in a position that um, not only got, gave her on the job training, but gave her some income as well. She's just one that has never had people love and lavish and help her feel heard. She's always been the one doing that for other people. And um, she's just so grateful. And it's, a lot of these stories are so heavy and people ask sometimes, well, isn't that hard to be around that all the time? And, and for me, it's not because it just feels good to see just so instantly how they respond to love and being heard. And um, it just knowing that we can help them get to a better place is really fulfilling. We've just seen that the need is great. And there are so many women with just tragic stories. And we want to make sure that we can not only continue the services we've been able to offer, but grow and be able to serve more women just want to thank, I mean, Rolling Hills, uh, it was our founder is Kathy Town, and we've just had so many dedicated volunteers, obviously, to be running for over a decade with 100% volunteer support. There's so many um, people that uh, give up their time and their resources, and I just want to thank everyone and for what you've already done and look forward to seeing what we can do together with God's help. Your faithful generosity has made this possible. You can participate in Practical Love by giving of your time and resources. Our goal this year is to pack 100,000 meals. To learn more about the projects we've supported in the past and how to sign up for the meal packing event, go to rollinghills.org love. How is God calling you to show faithfulness through Practical Love? Good morning, my name is Zach. I am the Community and Global and Outreach Pastor here. And one of the things that we get to do is partner with some amazing organizations and that's one of the things that I get to kind of have my hands in the cookie jar, so to speak. And so one of the organizations that we get to partner with is Divine Threads. And so Stephanie, I know you were gonna just kind of introduce some of the folks that are here and just say a quick note. Thank you, Zach. Um, I wanna introduce with me is our board chair, Tanya Kimmer, our founder that most of all of you know is Kathy Town and Pat Kimmer is our treasurer. Oh, oh. Are you, are you, sorry, were you gonna say something? I didn't mean to steal the mic from you. <laughs> Um, well, I just, we just want to thank, because uh, we've been uh, around now for 12 years, and um, it's been volunteer, and we've had so much support from people from Rolling Hills, and we just want to continue to thank you. And, you know, just stories like we shared in the video, I mean, she also, as in addition to doing the clothing in Omega, she took the tech class, because she had, didn't have the opportunity to learn t just basic computer skills, and then she's also enrolled in our uh, mending the soul program. So she's, but she's an example of someone that's benefited from all the programs we offer. We just thank you so much for your support. Yeah. Um, if you guys will just take a moment to pray with me, we're going to pray for them and the ministry they're doing. And then afterwards, they're hanging out out there if you guys want to talk with them. But if you want, feel comfortable, extend your hand out in prayer. Uh, Father God, we are just so grateful um, for the ways that you allow us to partner with you. We are grateful for the ways that you allow us to, to serve you and to serve the people that you love. Um, Father, first and foremost, I just lift up the, the team at Divine Threads and all the people they are serving. I thank you for them. I pray that you continue to give them strength and endurance. 
And Lord, we just, um, we lift up the people that are coming through their doors, the women that are coming through their doors, looking to experience love. Um, we thank you, Lord, that they get to experience that there. Um, Lord, they get to experience that, that they are valuable and worthy in not only just human eyes, but in your eyes as well. Lord, I just ask that you continue to use the team there to help the women walking through their doors to experience your love and come to know your love in a very personal way. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I know those people. Yeah, it, it's, um, you know, practical love. We want every, um, every year when we do this just to remind you of, man, this just the cool things that are going on, you know, here and around here. Um, and, uh, you know, when we, we highlight projects typically and practical love is a month where you can give towards projects that we anticipate are going to, come our way this coming month or this coming year. And um, it is just amazing to see the continued expansion of um, God, you know, reaching out to people in need and uh, touching their lives um, with, with practical help and practical love, but also um, sharing the hope of Jesus. And I, I know every week there's people, there's women who will find themselves in really difficult situations that show up at, at uh, Div Divine Threads and receive help. And uh, they not only receive real help and, and begin changing even their perspective of themselves, but, um, but they're told why. Um, why this, this love is being extended to them because of the love Jesus extended to us. And, um, it is just really a privilege to partner with these different organizations. Now, when Zach and I were planning Practical Love this year, we didn't know about a challenge that was coming our way. And I talked about it last week, but I, I'm going to talk about it every week just to, uh, well, if I figure if I talk about it every week for a month, I'll probably hit most of us, um, knowing that we all don't come every week. But um, uh, as we're mapping this out, uh, one of the things that we know that maybe you don't know is that the foundational support for these partnership comes from our regular giving. And then this month is typically where we highlight um, projects and opportunities. And this is how we were able to do projects for these different ministries last year. And these are the things coming up. Well, as I told you last week, the month of December, which is a big month for all of these ministries and all churches, uh, it's a big giving month. And uh, for us, it just happened to be the worst giving month uh, that we've had as far as December since 2007. And, um, and so it, it presents a challenge for us that we weren't anticipating. And that is we need to increase our regular giving in order to sustain the, the impact that God is having through all these ministries that we're involved with, as well as the ministries that are birthed from, um, from you, from Rolling Hills. And so uh, we just wanted to bring you up to speed with that. And uh, just to let you know, after December happened, we're, we were over 300000 almost $350,000 behind our projected giving. It's like, well, did you increase your projections You know, a bunch? No, we just kept the actual giving of last year and projected that we would receive that this year. And we built a budget on that. And so we're behind um, as a result of December. And so we, need, we have some catching up to do. So um, I'm talking to you about a need that we have. And so if you're part of the Rolling Hills family, um, this is for you. If you're part of the family that, you know, gosh, the ministry of Rolling Hills had impact on your life and, and you're interested in helping, then great. But here's what I really believe with all my heart and soul is, uh, you know, God is the resources of the resource of all of our blessings. And I, I think if he wanted to intervene and just, you know, magically produce extra resources, he can do that. And actually he's done that at times throughout um, our history. But I don't think he primarily wants us to engage with, engage with generosity because he needs our resources. I think he prom, primarily wants us to engage because he wants to grow us. And he wants us to recognize what a gift it is um, to grow a heart of generosity. 
because it reflects him. And so, you know, here's something that I've said several times, but I put it up on the screen for you. Generosity is not birthed from obeying a God who wants from us. But our generosity is birthed out of an understanding of what God has done for us. There's just no way we can grow in our understanding of who God is and what he's done without being overwhelmed by his goodness and uh, how he has really blessed us in our lives and extended grace and mercy to us at times where we weren't even, we weren't pursuing him and yet he was pursuing us. And as we get more and more overwhelmed by his grace and generosity, it starts impacting our, lot, our heart and we start seeing people more and more the way he sees people. And we wanna step into um, generosity as well. And so um, I'm asking you that you just pray. And um, I don't know how God will lead you, but I'm asking you to pray that number one, that God would expand our resources. He's expanding our ministry. He's expanding our impact the number of people that we're impacting, the number of people who are engaging in the ministries of Rolling Hills is growing. And so my prayer is that he just grows our base of giving. And the good news is our, our, give, our base of giving hasn't shrunk. We still have the same number of people contributing to Rolling Hills, but we're falling a little bit behind in that uh, I think inflation has something to do with it. But basically it, it's you know kind of a, opportunity for all of us to engage God in this conversation. And I know for some people, generosity is something that's like, yeah, I want my heart to grow with generosity. I just don't know how in the world it's going to happen with my financial situation. And uh, I want you to know, if you, if you just need practical help on how to plan a budget, you know, a spending plan, how to do it uh, a budget that reflects your goals and gets rid of your debt um, we have people who are good at that. And if you want, would like to talk to somebody just to help you out on, on some basic understanding of how do you establish that kind of a pattern in your life. Um, I mean, it's something that most people need and don't know how to do. And so we have people who are great at it. If you just let us know, you know, use that card in front of your, the seat back in front of you and just say, I like, some, I like to have somebody to meet with to talk about a spending plan and put your contact information. We'll get a hold of you this week and, and um, have somebody sit down with you and, and help you in that process. But my, my prayer is that, you know, as, as family here at Rolling Hills, that, that you would take this opportunity and challenge seriously and just say, God, you know, how, how, um, how am I res to respond to this? And what does that look like? And uh, God, would you expand um, the base of, of support for your ministry here at Rolling Hills. And so that's, that's my ask of you. We'll let you know how it's going. We'll be, we'll be looking at over the next couple months to see if, if there's a trend, like we're catching up or we're, you know, how's that looking? And then talk about, you know, if, um, if it's trending, like we're not gonna be able to catch up, then what we're gonna do about that um, with uh, cuts in our ministry budget, okay? And so we will keep you up to speed. All right. Now, um, we are, this month with Practical Love, each week we're going to look at a different book of the Old Testament. We're going to look at an entire book. They're not the biggest books, but still it's an entire book. And so we're going to fly. I'm going to walk you through it. And we're looking at the book of Esther today. Now, one of the interesting things about the book of Esther is that God is not mentioned in that book. And it's like, whoa, why is it in the Bible? Well, there's actually two books in the Bible that God is not mentioned. He's referred to, he's assumed, um, but not mentioned. And that's the book of Esther and the Song of Solomon. Now, uh, last week we looked at Jonah. Jonah was a Galilean prophet. He was told to go to Nineveh. That was kind of the capital of the Assyrian kingdom. Assyria eventually, about 50, 50 years after Jonah, came down and defeated the northern kingdom of Israel, okay, and took people off into exile. Assyria was eventually defeated by the Babylonian Empire, all right? The Babylonian Empire came down, attacked the southern kingdom of Israel called Judah, and eventually defeated Judah and took people back to Babylon 
in, ex in exile as well. Babylon was eventually defeated by the Medo-Persian Empire. All right, And so that's the people who are in control when the book of Esther, the story of Esther, unfolds. Okay, So it's the Persian Empire. We'll show you. Um, I mean, this was no small thing. I mean, the dark green is what Persia controlled and, and defeated. And so it is a huge, huge piece of land. It goes um, to the borders of Athens and Macedonia. It goes down through Egypt. It goes through Jerusalem, which is, this is a good picture because in ancient times, if you were a, if you were an army or a kingdom that wanted to rule the world, you had to deal with Egypt. And if you were Egypt, you had to deal with Asia and eventually Europe. And so what did you have to control? Well, that little strip of land where Jerusalem is there. And so that's why that land was so important. And that's why that land was such a war-torn piece of land um, in ancient times and this very minute. But uh, so that kind of gives you an idea. Susa is where the story of, es of Esther takes part and a growing kingdom at the time of Esther and a, a growing power is out where Athens is, is Greece, is the upper left there. Um, Greece is, is the lower part and Macedonia would be the upper part of that. And there was a ruler named Philip of Macedonia who was growing in power and becoming a threat to the Persians. And um, Philip would have a son named Alexander who was later known as Alexander the Great who would conquer Persia. All right, so there you have some historical information. I'll tell you a little bit more about that. But one of the things in the book of Esther, one of the key plots in the book of Esther is that there was a decree that all the Jewish people should be killed. All right, so you think, okay, well, that's the Jewish people who were in Persia. They were exiled. Look at what they own. If all the Jewish people were killed, then that means the entire race of Jews would be eliminated. Because every place where a Jew would have lived, if you were in exile or if you went back home to the Holy Land, the Promised Land, um, this applied to you. And so, big um, part of the plot is how does this happen? Now, God's never mentioned, but throughout the book of Esther, whoever wrote it, we're not sure, it may have been Mordecai, it may have been somebody else, but Whoever wrote it, um, it is clear that the providential hand of God is at work. And what that means is from our view, we can look at life and say, okay, there's a bunch of evil things happening. Things are falling apart. This obviously isn't what God wants. It's, there's threats. Um, th this is disaster. And that may be what we're seeing but the providential hand of God is always at work. And even in the midst of disasters, he can cause things to happen for his ultimate good and glory. And we may not see it from our perspective, but he's at work. And that's one of the main things of the book of Esther is that you see the hand of God at work when the people and the Jews and Esther and Mordecai are, are panicking over what they're seeing. Um, God's hand is still moving. And maybe that is something that you need to, to sit into today with your circumstances and the things that you're seeing in your life is that um, you may not see God, God sees you. And God is at work. So that's the first point is God's hands of providence is always at work. And we're gonna to begin to see it in the first chapter of Esther throughout the entire book. Esther chapter one, verse one. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, now, we know him by his Greek name, and that's the name of Xerxes, all right? And so you might know Xerxes from history, um, and that's who is the king of Persia at the time. Um, Xerxes, who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 providences, and you just saw a map of the breadth of his kingdom. He reigned from 46, 486 BC to 465 BC. And in there is the story of Esther. 
Now, as Esther starts, um, Xerxes throws a party. And the purpose of the party is just to remind his kingdom how powerful they are and how rich he is and how powerful he is as king. And so he doesn't throw like a normal party. He throws a party that lasts six months, six months. And so he, he's drunk for six months. And it's, it's, it's you know, Xerxes in the Bible, is, it's not a real flattering picture of the guy, but um, he is a, a, not only a huge power, but he is um, a huge partier. And he's so full of himself that at the end of six months, and what he's doing, he, he knows he's going to go out and he's going to have to tackle Philip. And he's going to have to you know, um, conquer the Spartans. And so he's just getting his people really confident that, hey, we'll do this. We'll do this like we won all these other battles. We'll get them too. At the end of his six-month party, um, he's looking around. He's like, hey, where's my queen? My queen is beautiful, and I want to remind everybody how amazing I am because not only am I powerful and have this great empire, but man, I have this beautiful woman as my wife, my queen. And so he sends word out to Queen Vashti, which, by the way, happens to be, I think it's the great-granddaughter of King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon. Queen Vashti evidently is not impressed with Xerxes. It's like, you've been drunk, been doing stupid things for six months. That's why I'm not even there. And so I'm filling in the blanks here. I don't know this for sure, but this is what I'm imagining. Um, and I'm not coming. I'm not coming. You've made a fool of yourself. I'm not going to let you make a fool of me. Xerxes evidently is a mean drunk because he gets angry. And he, it happens a few times throughout Esther. When, when he's, um, he's drinking a lot, he, he has a kind of a quick temper. And so he's so mad at Vashti, he declares right there that she is deposed. She is no longer queen. She is no longer his wife. And, she, and he eliminates that relationship. So now he goes off to war. And uh, it, it's, um, in your calendars, it's, eight, it's 480 B.C. And if you know history and warfare at all, you may be familiar with the Battle of Thermop Thermopylae. It was also kind of immortalized for our generation in a movie called The 300. Um, Xerxes goes and takes on Alexander. Philip of Macedonia, and they had this big battle um, where 300 Spartan soldiers hold back the forces of, of tens of thousands of Persians. And they do that for three days. Eventually, they are defeated, and Xerxes comes back home in triumph, but also a little sober in the sense that, uh, wow, 300 took us on for three days. And he became really kind of enamored with the training of the Spartans and how they trained each individual soldier to become just this fighting machine where he just had these mass quantities of people that he was just throwing um, numbers at people. And so he comes back and um, licking his wounds a little bit, but he's victorious. And he says, okay, I, I, I need to do something that, that's for me. And um, like, everything's not for him. But he says, I want a queen. And so we're going to have a year-long beauty pageant, and I'm going to find a queen. And so send the word throughout the kingdom, have the most beautiful, eligible bachelorettes come. And it was a, it was a show that really took over the whole empire. That, no, not really. Um, but uh, he had a, you know, he was giving roses to bachelorettes uh, for a year until he got it down to the one. And the one was this woman named Esther. Esther was a Jewish exile. And she did not let anybody know that when she entered into this pageant that she was a Jew because she thought that would have eliminated her immediately from the, you know, the competition. So Xerxes eventually chooses her. And he is smitten. I mean, he is just head over the heels for her. And it's just like, wow, I now officially have the most beautiful woman in all of the kingdom, and it's Esther. 
Now enters a man named Mordecai. Mordecai is Esther's cousin. So he's hanging around the palace after the king marries Esther, and, um, and he's actually getting a position of a little bit of influence within the kingdom of, of Xerxes because of his relationship with Esther. And he overhears a couple of the king's guards talking, saying they're, they're going over their plan to assassinate the king. And so Mordecai goes to Esther and says, hey, I just heard this. There's, there's, the king's going to be assassinated. He needs to be warned. Esther goes to the king, warns him, and uh, says, yes, my cousin Mordecai that found out. The king is saved from that plot and is very grateful for Mordecai, but he doesn't do anything about it. He, he doesn't really thank him. He doesn't reward him. Okay, um, And that will come back later in the story. So that's Mordecai. Now enter the villain of the story, a man named Haman. Haman was somebody that was going up the ranks. I mean, he was, he was getting more and more authority in Xerxes' um, kingdom. And he had access to Xerxes. And Xerxes was basically liking him so much that he put him in, in second in command. And he gave... Um, Haman, his signet ring, because he trusted him so much, he said, okay, you use my ring, and, which means Haman now had the authority of the king to make decrees because he could stamp it with the ring of the king. So Xerxes likes Haman so much that he decides, hey, um, I'm, I'm going to make a decree that throughout the kingdom, when people see you, they have to bend a knee because you represent my authority and you're, you represent me. And so it makes this decree throughout the land. So Haman's walking around, feeling great about himself and feeling great that everybody's bending the knee to him. And then all of a sudden he runs into this guy who does not bend the knee. And he's like, what, what's, what's your problem? And he says, I, I am, my name is Mordecai. I, I am a Jew. And I bend the knee to no man. I just bend the knee to the one true God. And Haman is ticked off. He is so angry, is boiling within him, so angry. Now it says Haman is an Agagite, and which isn't a common name. It's like, who are those? Um, we know them as Canaanites, all right? Who are the Canaanites? The Canaanites were the people that occupied the land when the children of Israel was promised that land, and God, over hundreds of years, waited for the Canaanite people to turned their trust to God, but instead they turned their trust away from God and they did incredibly evil things and incredibly perverse practices in the worship of other gods that God finally said, okay, my judgment's gonna come. And the children of Israel went in, children of descendants of Abraham went in and captured the land of Canaan and that's the holy land, the promised land. So Haman has a long-standing beef with the Jews and what they did to his people. So he goes to the king, and without naming the Jews, he just says, there's a group of people in your country who do not respect your authority. They live differently than we live, they have different customs, and they do not honor you like they should as king. And so Xerxes says, do with them what you want. You have my signet ring. And so Haman decrees that every Jew in the Persian Empire is gonna be killed, which would, be, which would mean um, total racial annihilation. It's a total genocide. Which by the way, here we are looking at ancient history, and yet here we, in the news, hear conversations about that still today, that nations want them, want all Jews to be eliminated. Why? This is what I think is behind the scenes here is I think Satan knows that God has made promises that have been fulfilled and are yet to be fulfilled to the Jewish people. And he says, you will be my people, the people of Abraham, and I am going to work through you to bless the world. And there are promises still yet to come of God to the descendants of Abraham. Satan knows if I can get rid of them, I have just ruined the plan and purposes of God. I've, just, I've made God a liar because now he cannot fulfill his promises because some of them are dependent upon these people. 
And if, if, if I can get rid of them, I will. And I think that's why so many people and so many nations throughout history have tried to do that. And here is Haman as one of those. Okay, now I gotta figure out where I am. Um, okay, so Mordecai and Esther, as well as all the Jewish people throughout the empire are in mourning. And uh, what Haman does is every day he rolls dice. They're called pure, P-U-R. And, and he's waiting for a certain combination to happen that will determine when the date will be. And so the date hasn't been set as he's been rolling these dice. And finally, he, the date is set based upon his roll of dice. And the people um, who are descendants of Abraham are going, oh no, we are, we all, our days are numbered. He's going to kill us all. And Mordecai and Esther are two of those people. But then they think, you know, maybe more than any other Jewish person throughout this kingdom, God has placed us where he has so that we can do something about it. They don't know what, they don't know how, but they begin, it says they, they fasted. They fasted, and fasting means that you are um, staying away from food, and when you um, typically eat, you, you dedicate that time to pray, praying to God. And so Esther's like, well, they, you know, the king doesn't even know that I'm a Jew. And Mordecai's going, you know, he's, he, he'll find out. And, um, but I, I know this. I know that somehow God is going to preserve our people because he's made promises to us that are yet to be fulfilled. And so you may die, I may, get, I may die, but somehow God's gonna preserve some of us. And then he says this in, in chapter four, verse 13. Then Mordecai told them, the messengers, to go back to Esther and say this, do not think of yourself or think to yourself that in, this, in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will probably be destroyed, be killed. And then he says this, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He's saying maybe God has providentially placed you where you are at this time so that you could be courageously used by God to protect his people. It's, it, it's words of faith for Esther to consider, to say, am I gonna take the risk, expose who my people are, and also expose myself to be killed? And so they pray. And so here, here's the second thought. God's hand of providence means you can courageously trust God right where you are. And maybe for you today, this is what you need to hear. Maybe you're, you have thoughts like, you know, if, if this, this can happen and this can happen, I could see how the events of my life could lead me to a place that would just be awesome. I mean, then I would really be living. Or if this one change would happen, then I feel like God has me right where he wants me and I'll be living the life he wants me to live. But it's, these things need to change in order for me to be where God wants me. And maybe God has you right where he wants you right now. And it might not be great, it might not be comfortable, it might be um, things that, you know, in, in order to honor God with my life right now, I have to take some great risks. And God's saying, I can use you. In, in my providential control, I can work through you if you're willing to trust me because you're right where I want you. And that's what Esther had to decide. And Esther decided to be courageous and to put her position of authority, her background of who her people um, and who she was and her life on the line. And she didn't know how it was going to work, but she said, okay, God, I'm going to step into this. Use me. And God had her right where he wanted her 
for such a time as this. And maybe God has you right where he wants you for such a time as this. And you know, you know, in order for me to honor God where he has placed me right now, it's gonna put, it's, I'm going to have to risk maybe relationships. I'm going to have to risk um, letting go of things that I don't want to let go of. And you know, that's a life of faith. We talk about, I want to live a life of faith, trusting God. And that doesn't happen unless you're willing to risk. And say, God, I'm, I choose to do the right thing for you right now, even though I have other ways that I can try to manipulate the situation to make it better for me. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do the right thing. and I'm going to trust in you. And that's a risk. I mean, as we grow in generosity, I mean, that's one of the most difficult things our heart has to get around is, um, do I trust that God's the giver of all good things? Do I trust the buck doesn't stop with my boss, but it actually stops with God? Can I trust him? And we make decisions of faith, but it requires risk. And that's what Esther decides I'm, I'm doing. It. And she says, if I'm to die, I die. But I'm going to trust God. Chapter 5. She goes and she's in, invited. Um, as her and Mordecai talk, one of, the, one of the problems they have is in order to talk to the king, you have to be invited into the king's presence. And it, you know, being the wife of the king doesn't mean that's going to happen. And if you go to the king and say, hey, I'd like to talk, uh, that's actually punishable by death. And so the king is like in this, this, in this sacred position of authority that he has um, total control of who comes across his path. And so eventually he calls for Esther. And Esther comes to him and says, King, um, would you do me the honor of coming to a banquet that I would prepare just for you and your right-hand man, Haman? And during that banquet, I, I have something to humbly ask of you. And the king says, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. And she doesn't tell him what, but she says, this is what I would like. And so um, Haman is feeling really even better about himself, if that's possible. Because Haman's you know, pretty narcissistic, and, he, and he's just thinking the world is about him, even though the world he should be thinking is about his boss, the king. But he's going, I've just been invited to a banquet that only, the only other guests there, or the only other people there is going to be the queen and the king. I'm doing pretty good. And so the banquet happens. And the king goes to Esther and says, you, you had something to ask of me. And Esther, in that moment, for some reason, paused. And I think it was because she's been praying and fasting. And she's been asking God, how is this going to happen and when is this to ha should happen? And she just sensed this is not the timing. And so she doesn't ask, but she says, um, will you do me the favor of coming to another banquet tomorrow? This, the, the two of you. And then tomorrow, I'll tell you my, my ask. And so they said, sure. You know, obviously it was great, whatever was happening there at the banquet. And, um, and Haman's going, man, I am living the life. And Xerxes just crazy about his wife and says, yes. And so she pauses. And so God's hand of providence means that you can courageously trust God right where you are, but then the next thing is God's hand of providence. If you seek him, he'll reveal the right thing to do at the right time. At the right time. Chapter six. They leave. They leave the first banquet. Haman's leaving the banquet, walking through the streets, going, man, everybody should be bowing to me. Everybody, you know, I, I am living the, the life beyond my dreams because I am the second most special person in all the kingdom. And who does he run into? Mordecai. This Jewish man that he hates that still refuses to bend the knee. And so he just 
in his heart, he's just seething. He goes home, talks to his wife, and says, no, you should do something about that. He says, okay, tell you what I'm going to do. is uh, Let's get our servants, build the gallows out in our front yard, which it's not the gallows like a hangman's noose. It's actually a spike that is like 30 feet high that he wants to impel Mordecai on. And he says, all I need to do to make this happen tomorrow is tomorrow morning I'll be in the palace waiting and, and the king beckons me. I'm going to ask him, um, will he let me kill Mordecai? And then he'll be hanging by this time tomorrow. So that's his plan. The king goes home after the first banquet and goes to go to sleep and he has insomnia. And so he calls one of his servants and said, okay, read me a book. Read me a book. They'll put me to sleep. So the servant gets the chronicles of the king and starts re reading to him about his, his, um, his rule over Persia and happens to read him the section recalling his life being threatened by guards and how he was saved based on the warning of this man named Mordecai. And he goes, you know what? I don't think I ever thanked him or rewarded him. And so he goes back to sleep. They get up first thing in the morning. Haman is at the palace waiting for Xerxes to call him in. Xerxes calls him in. Haman's going, sweet. And he's going, uh, king. And king goes, yeah, hey, Haman, um, I have a question for you. What should I do to appropriately honor somebody that I really want to honor? And Haman, being Haman, says, he's talking about me. He wants to honor me. Okay, here's what you need to do, king. You need to take the best clothes that we have available, and you need to dress whoever this person is in those clothes. And your best horses, give them the best horse, and allow him to be escorted around Susa to all these people and have people yell, this is the man that the king wants to honor. I think that would be pretty cool. And Xerxes said, okay, Haman, make it happen. I want to honor Mordecai. <laughs> Haman goes, <laughs> it's so funny. I thought you said Mordecai. He said, yeah, I did. I want you to honor Mordecai and make it happen. You prayed him around the city. And so Haman has to get all this stuff together, get Mordecai, put him on the horse, and parade him around the city yelling, this is the man that the king wants to honor. Not a good day for Haman, and it's going to get worse. So they go to the banquet after Haman's mourning was terrible. They go to the banquet and the king says, Esther, what is it that you want, what you want from us? And Esther says, you don't know this, but I'm Jewish and my life has been demanded of me and all of my people. We have been um, used to basically lead to a genocide of me and my family and my people. And the king goes, what? And she goes, yeah. And the king says, who did this? Who did this and where are they? And in chapter seven, verse six, Esther says, a foe and an enemy did this, this wicked Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Esther was there for such a time as this, and she was sensitive to God in her life to know when to mention something. And in the last 24 hours, Xerxes had sleepless night, was reminded of the goodness of a Jew named Mordecai that resulted in saving his life. And Haman was reminded of his hatred for Mordecai and he made a spike in his front yard for him to be impaled on. And the king says, take Haman and use that spike. And Haman was impaled on the spike. 
And he said, Esther, I give you everything that Haman owns. I give it to you and your family. And then take that ring off of Haman's finger. And Mordecai, I give you my signet ring as second in command. Like the hand of God at work through this whole story to a point where the plot twists and reversals happen. But there's still a problem in that the king had made this decree to kill all the Jews on this date. And a decree from the king of Persia cannot be overwritten. He can't come up with another decree decree saying, no, I changed my mind. And so what he says to Mordecai is now you have my authority. Come up with a counter decree that could result in saving the Jewish people and my wife. And so Mordecai comes up with the decree that all the Jews throughout the land, if anybody comes against you on this date, you can defend yourself to the death so that you can be saved. And the word goes out to all the Jews in the land. And it says that many Persians converted to Judaism that day because they saw the providential hand of God of the children of Abraham. And they said, I want to serve a God who cares for his people. And many came to God and placed their faith in him that day. The day came and the Jews defended themselves and they did not lose their lives. They were saved. And then Xerxes tells um, Mordecai and Esther, um, you know, if you want to make an annual day where you can commemorate this moment, feel free to do that. And they come up with the Feast of Feast of Purim. Pur, the dice. The Feast of Purim that is still um, recognized today and, and celebrated today by practicing Jews. And in that feast, in that celebration, they read the book of Esther to remind them of the providential care of God for his people. Now, Esther and Mordecai are not held up for us as these are people of great morality. These are just, you know, really great examples of people who are following God because they really weren't. I mean, they were, um, they were big partiers. They were taking care, they were putting on feasts and taking part of feasts in which, you know, unclean, uh, food was being partaken of, and they were all in. Esther married a Gentile, which she wasn't supposed to. And so what's the deal? The deal is this, is that God uses people that make a lot of bad decisions. If they're willing to say, you know what, I recognize that God, you're God, and I need to follow you, and I'm willing to courageously trust you. And God can use people for his purposes if they're just willing to trust him. And God's a God of reversals. I mean, Esther was a woman who decided to risk her position of power and authority in the palace by identifying with the people that were were immigrants. And she risked it all for their sake. And now you fast forward and the ultimate Esther was Jesus who gave up. He didn't risk it. He gave it up. He gave up God the Son sitting at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And he left that throne in order to become a man on earth and take on humanity so that he could identify with you and I. And then he lived a life of perfectly trusting God. And God says, I will bless and reward your life for your faithfulness. And what did Jesus do as a result of that? He then said, 
I will take on the curse that the people I'm identifying with deserve. That's you and me. Are we terrible people? Maybe not, but I know this for each one of us. We're self-centered. We're self-absorbed in our own ways. We say, God, I know more than you. I know how I should live my life more than you. Even if you're my creator, I trust myself more than you. And what that does is it, it, it elevates ourselves into the place of God in our life. And God says, ultimately, I, can know, I cannot let the guilty go unpunished. And Jesus says, put that punishment on me. And so identified with us. And he took on our sin on the cross. And our punishment went on him. So that the blessings that he deserves, he can offer to you and I. And we have a gracious, merciful, generous God who offers that to us instead. And so we have the communion tables up here. They're, they're in the back on the sides they're in the very back, and we're going to take communion together. And it's a time for us to take the bread and the cup and to connect our minds and our hearts to how good God has been to us and how uh, he let go of his throne in heaven to take on humanity, to stand in our place, to take our punishment. I mean, God is a God that... Um, is a providential God that is working behind the scenes for good. And if we trust in him, it does not mean that we will be without pain, that our circumstances in life are going to be great, that we're going to avoid all sickness. It means that, you know what, you may face pain and sickness and difficulty in life, but that does not have the last word. God does. And even facing death, our greatest fear, God says, you know, we grieve, but we do not grieve as those without hope. Because all that death is, is a passage of this life into eternal life with him, who we were ultimately created to be with. And that's how life, our greatest flourishing in life was meant to be, by having an unencumbered relationship with him. God's a God of reversals. Man, Satan had to be thinking, ah, Mordecai is going to be killed on a spike and all the Jews are going to be wiped out and this is going to ruin the plans of God. And then God in his providential care reversed it. And Satan said, you know, Jesus is on the cross. I'm killing the son of God. This ruins everything. And then three days later, God, the father raised the body of God, the son from the dead. So he has power over, over sin and death and he offers us life. And so let's take a moment and get our heads around that as we take the bread and the cup, take it back to your chairs, and when you're ready, go ahead and uh, enjoy communion.